I'm Dr. Mack, a licensed psychologist, and just as my understanding of your interests has evolved, so has this podcast. The entire purpose of me starting this podcast was to bridge the gap between all these experts in different fields conducting this amazing research and actually delivering that to you. So we get to do a deep dive on all this really interesting information while also correcting a lot of misconceptions and misinformation that occurs on social media. This is Revealing the Ivory Tower podcast. Happy Wednesday, listeners. And guess what? It is the season finale. I cannot believe it. And I could think of no better person to go all out with and send off this season than the said scientist herself, Paige Lemon. Now, you might remember her being on here before talking about epigenetics and social isolation, but today she's going to talk about an area that's even more of a strength of hers, stronger knowledge base, and that's substance use and more specifically opioid and opiate use. We actually did a full deep dive. You might notice that this episode is longer than most because we did two parts to it. We want to make sure we send you off in an amazing way and give you so much information. This is truly a drugs 101 course, essentially, but way better than the D.A.R.E. program. I don't even know if I can fully do a summary of what this episode entails because we truly cover all the things. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so we're back with one of my favorite people on the internet, my (laughs) co-conspirator during troll raids on Instagram. It is the said scientist, aka Paige Lemon. Do you want to, as a refresher for people, we talked before about social isolation, social determinants of health. Do you want to kind of talk about what you do exactly, what your field is, and what you talk about on Instagram and do for your research? Yes. So I was on this podcast before we talked about social isolation and social determinants of health in particular, talked about how different things in our society and environment can affect people's health outcomes in the future and now. I'm on this podcast to talk more specifically about my primary field of research, which is drug addiction. Um, I specialize in opioid use disorder specifically, um, but it's mainly drug addiction behavior. And I do rats. (laughs) I work with uh, different rats and try and model different drug addiction behaviors and model social determinants of health. particularly social isolation right now. That's what my PI and I decided on eventually. I'm a PhD candidate at UTHSC, which is like short for the mouthful University of Tennessee Health Science Center. I do a bunch of other things. I'm a board member of Tennessee Harm Reduction, do kind of like on the the side drug policy things, do a lot of science communication on Instagram. Um, including with you. Yeah, I also have another account. So if people follow my other one, which was at Page Lemon, I decided to just make a professional account, which is mainly due to a, a slumlord situation, which we don't have to get into. <laughs> I have a professional account and that's at the SUD scientist, sun scientist. I mean, that's so much. You're doing all the things and it's it's in your handle, the sub scientist. So clearly we need to have you talking about the thing that you actually study. So where should we start today? I feel like there's so many different directions we can go in. I know. It's 
people are always interested in drugs in general, for sure, especially drugs that can alter your mood and behavior and are addictive. People in general, I think, are interested in addiction. Um, the history of like the drug war and why drugs are illegal and some are not. There's a shit ton of myths about that, including about now the recent fentanyl poisoning. The previous scare was heroin. Yeah, we could go into a lot. Do you want me to start with like just in general with the drug war? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of starting with the basics because... Yeah, it seems like there's so much misinformation information, and also misinformation. And so it, it's hard to even know where to start or, or take pieces off to make sense of it. Yeah, so it's weird because everybody, including people in this field, um, definitely come in with an inherent bias towards drugs. It's unlike other fields that you can do research on, like cancer, or honestly, like any kind of disease where like you come in here and you already have misconceptions about it you think you know what it is um just from like what you hear and what you were raised to believe and i mean on top of it i don't know how to explain this there's just been like so much misinformation in our childhood like the dare program and oh my god you're weed and it's gonna make you kill your mother and all of that and it's it's a lot to go through there's people i work with that really need to check their own biases as well yeah i think a good place to start just at the beginning of this podcast for people listening is um, not to look at drugs as like good or evil. People doing them are not good or bad. We've moved on, I think, in society from like the idea that it's a moral failing. But now we consider addiction as a disease. But even that is controversial because uh, just in general, this field is controversial. People think they know a lot about it when they don't. And that's like a a big issue in general, even in my field, but also outside of my field, obviously. People who use drugs not are not always addicted. And sometimes what we consider addiction is not really addiction either. Just the broad definition in the medical term is just being unable to stop using a drug due to consequences. But the thing is, is those consequences can be things that shouldn't be consequences in general. Like you can do any drug and be sent to jail and that's considered a consequence. But does that, does that really mean that you had a consequence and you should stop because the drug war and the DEA and the people who are arresting you and contributing to mass incarceration say you're addicted? Yeah, that's just um, a big can of worms to open. In general, I think it's also important to remember that like there's an, a huge group of people that like we live with every day you may be one. I may be one. <laughs> uh, other people online that we interact with may be them. They may use drugs safely and responsibly. And the issue is some of the harms that come in with drug use is because we've policed them so bad and shared so much misinformation and made it very hard for people to use drugs and go about their normal lives, like having a job without getting drug tested and, I mean, having a criminal record for just using drugs and people assuming that that means you were addicted. So maybe you were forced to go to AA or treatment when you didn't actually need that stuff like that. So just to get that out of the way. <laughs> yeah. I think I've seen Carl Hart give some conversations with some talks that are very controversial. Oh God. I, I think he's at Yale, right? I don't want to miss, I don't want to, be mistaking the university, but it's one of the Ivy league ones. And I think he's talked about 
least kind of destigmatizing because he even has used heroin at very small doses, which seems even for me hearing that just it's so ingrained of you can't use that at small doses and not die for like just this big amplified reaction. What? You can't do that without having horrible withdrawal symptoms or whatever the case is. So regardless of the research and that piece, I do appreciate hearing that, which I think is kind of what you're trying to say too, that there are just so many misconceptions. Because I also think too, isn't caffeine the most widely used quote drug or substance in the world? It might be. That would make a lot of sense. (laughs) I don't know if I make it the most widely used because it's weird when you look up the statistics, they'll consider some drugs abused and it's not really Mm. used. (laughs) I hate that word, abused. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Caffeine can also cause withdrawal. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I oftentimes get very, very busy and don't have enough sleep and then we'll just like pound back monster energy drinks, which is horrible. And oh my God, I definitely will get a headache the next day. I'll feel like I need it. And if I drink caffeine to cure the headache, that will help, meaning I was in withdrawal from caffeine. (laughs) Yeah. So that begs the question then, how did we get to this point where some substances are criminalized and some aren't? And then also the, the schedules of drugs or the classifications from a legal standpoint. Oh God, those are all bullshit. <laughs> the the <laughs> schedule is bullshit. But let me just get into it. I guess so. Like officially, the drug war began in the seventies when Nixon basically declared a war on drugs. Um, drugs is like public enemy number one, or whatever he said. Um, he increased funding for policing and criminalization, mandatory minimums, and the DEA. Um, A lot of misinformation campaigns came out of that, but it really started, I don't know if this is really considered the drug war, but this is definitely where a lot of the misinformation started. Um, Mm -hmm. It started like way back in the 1800s when Chinese immigrants brought over opium and started smoking opium, opium, which is the plant that opioids come from. So like heroin, oxycontin, oxycodone, hydrocodone, all of those, the painkillers. And a lot of Racism came out of that in general, Chinese immigrants. I don't know if you've heard the term yellow peril, but it was in general the fear of immigrants, Chinese immigrants bringing over like their culture and ruining the the white supremacist settler state that we have, the Western side of the country. Yeah, the yellow peril is like a whole other, well, it's another can of worms that like we could have a whole separate podcast. It's really fucked up. But in general, they kind of used the fear of Chinese immigrants to outlaw smoking it. So that's kind of like how we banned that. And then anti-cocaine laws started by targeting Black Americans who are using it. I feel like that was the early 1900s. Oh, Um, really? Yeah, there were like... You went back that far. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I mean, the official drug war in the 70s was sure like the kickoff, kickoff of like mass incarceration and stuff. But like... I mean, it goes way back and it all started with racism. I know we think of like the crack epidemic and all of that and how that was like super racist um, in the drug war. But like the racism goes so far back. Oh, and I forgot to mention with the yellow peril thing. One reason uh, that they gave for making opium illegal was uh, that they were afraid 
that white women were going to start dating Chinese immigrants and smoking opium. And they were saying that's going to put them at risk. So like, you know, the fear of the innocent white woman getting hurt is, you know, why we. Yeah. (laughs) It's the opium that did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It feels weird. Uh, I'm a white woman and I definitely like see that still today as an issue. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So it started with that. Anti-cocaine laws, mostly used by Black Americans. Also, not long after, anti-marijuana laws started by targeting Latinos and eventually Black Americans as well. But then, like, there was this era, kind of like the hippie era, if you remember, where, like, people were protesting the war. People were, like, becoming much more intermingled and diverse than people would have wanted. And so that's kind of like when Nixon in the 70s uh, started the the war on drugs was basically to target black Americans and to target the people that were like protesting the war. Um, I actually I printed out uh, these words if you would like me to read them. I'm ready. It is a lot. I wanted to like get this because this is like a famous quote that a lot of people bring up um, is like the start of the drug war. So Nixon, apparently to start this off, he said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Didn't did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And then Nixon temporarily placed marijuana in Schedule 1, which is, like, the most restrictive category. And then, yeah, that was, like, backed by uh, Republican senators. I don't know their names, but... (laughs) He said that quote directly later? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It was a marketing... It was a marketing campaign before they even started. It was, like, a movement. So they had to start this marketing thing, and then get the support to criminalize it. Yeah. (laughs) I see. So I'm assuming they were being very theatrical with side effects of these substances or consequences, costs, things like that. Mm -hmm. Like the whole, I mean, we've probably seen those old posters that they had associating with marijuana, with like being super violent. Of course it showed people who were not white doing it and then also creating the violence in those images. Um, They did the same thing with the Chinese immigrants. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of misinformation campaigns. The D.A.R.E. program was also, I mean, I don't know if you went through the D.A.R.E. program in school, but I remember having to go to like the gym one day, a bunch of us like sat down and somebody came in and like gave us a whole discussion trying to scare us about using drugs. And all for me, honestly, like, I had not heard of a lot of these drugs. (laughs) So I was like, interesting. I am curious about these. And now I want to go. Yeah. 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 I remember, I think ours lasted multiple weeks or sessions for D.A.R.E. And I remember the rat mascot. I remember the commercials that were very theatrical and I remember the messaging was very fear-mongering and also not realistic like you were just gonna random people on the street are gonna walk up to you and offer you their substances which is not I mean it's your friends doing it and really if that happens yeah they've done so in my undergrad we actually 
learned about this that it absolutely that program was not effective at all. So for everyone listening, I want you to know and Paige is nodding. So we're in agreement here. I mean, the research shows the D.A.R.E. program was not effective at all. I didn't know it was still going. I still see it sometimes around locally, even at Walmart. And I have kindly walked up to them and had conversations. Wild. Yeah, I have no idea what what it, they keep trying. Just get rid of it. Rebrand. If you really want to still be there, rebrand and change the name. Yeah. Uh, the D.A.R.E. program, that was the Just Say No program as well, right? I um, think so. Or at least I think the campaign was like, just say no to drugs. And then the D.A.R.E. program is like, was backing it or whatever. But that was like in the 1980s from Ronald Reagan's wife, Nancy Reagan. Yes. Yeah. She was, she had like her own separate campaign of just like going around and like creating the slogan, just say no to drugs. And then also supporting the D.A.R.E. program. Um, It is weird though, because like, I mean, I don't know about you, but like whenever I've been with friends and we do anything, like nobody really like pressures me to like really do it. Nobody just gives me free drugs. I mean, if I'm with friends and they offer, I'm like, no, I'm good. That's the end of the conversation. That's it. Yeah. Uh, You're going to be harassed and they're going to give you free drugs. (laughs) Well, my gosh, also targeting. It was always like uh, they pictured older people coming up to little kids, giving away free drugs, which like, you kind of see that now in the fentanyl scare with the fentanyl and the Halloween candy, which was like a, that's just like an every year thing. There's going to be some sort of drugs with the Halloween candy. Um, and then like the different colors of fentanyl on the news. And it's just like, well, yeah, I mean, like they're just, they're just pills. And then people are just like hiding them in things. That's all. <laughs> it doesn't mean they're giving it to kids just because it's rainbow colored. Oh my God. Um, yeah. If anybody wants to know more about, fentanyl misinformation specifically they should follow dr ryan marino on twitter or instagram um he like targets a lot of that especially like online misinformation um he's a toxicologist right yeah i think he's in ohio as well i guess not that that matters if you follow him online (laughs) i'm from ohio so i'm like interesting (laughs) ohio is uh very known for being like the opioid uh, overdose epidemic. So I feel like a lot of people, you know, from there do this kind of work, or at least if not, they definitely know about it. I was going to say, so timing wise, you were kind of referencing these waves that we've had. So cocaine slash crack, heroin, and now, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I even think you've posted some data showing that heroin is not necessarily as present anymore in the batches there's fentanyl everywhere even in like stimulants and things so uh, what is the deal with the waves of different things and i'm still confused about how we got here especially with fentanyl i mean i would assume it's like the pain prescription opioids or something but i'm just curious about why the waves have happened Oh, that is a, yeah, that is a very good thing to bring up. I'm glad you're reminding me of that because a lot of it just comes down to like the war on drugs and criminalizing it. (laughs) Basically, I mean, when you crack down on something, that's what like they'll, they'll call it the DEA crack down on drugs. You don't necessarily get rid of it. You just create other markets trying to go for other things. Um, and that's essentially happened with fentanyl as well is like, 
it, they make it very, very hard to make and manufacture heroin. Um, and then eventually when they start making fentanyl, they start, you know, like seeing that as a problem. And then they start regulating fentanyl um, and then they'll go to like parfentanil and then all the different derivatives and stuff like that. And a lot of it just comes from like targeting one. So then they have to make another. Fentanyl can come from different places. So I don't want like this to come out as like, I don't want people to take this as like a racist thing, but a lot of fentanyl comes from China and they're manufacturing. And so like they will um, manufacture fentanyl there, which uh, opioid addiction is not necessarily as prevalent there, if really at all. Um, so the people there... Yeah, it is interesting. Um, the people there, though, I wouldn't say they necessarily like sometimes they aren't even aware that it's like such a big problem and they're where their drugs are going to. Like some of these, I mean, essentially large labs that are making it are even legal and they just like do other things on the side and then like uh, will crack down and say, you know, like something needs to be done about this. And then the Chinese government will crack down on them. And that's where it's like, OK, we can't make fentanyl anymore. Let's make car fentanyl and then all the other derivatives. It's just kind of like. I mean, cracking cracking down, like the DEA says, comes from like literally cracking down on drug users and that causes a problem. Cracking down on the lower level distributors, so like your dealers, that also causes issues, but it also causes issues up the line as well. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> There's actually, um, that's about as far as I know about like fentanyl, like large market, at least coming from China. Somebody wrote a book on that um i think it's fentanyl inc like fentanyl comma and then inc dot uh there's a book on that for people who are interested i forget who the author is but it's really good so is it being shipped out in medicate like in pill form and medication form is that what they think it's being manufactured for and then it's being interceded somehow and then it comes out onto our black market but also we have we still have doctors that use fentanyl right like I had a kidney stone a few years ago and I got fentanyl I did not get high at all I just felt the absence of pain and I thought my god if they just did this everywhere because I I didn't feel any euphoria I just felt the absence of pain Mm -hmm. and I was very surprised I got fentanyl I can't believe that that happened in the ER but yeah I mean it must be confusing because there are still times when I mean it's needed for intense pain right yeah i mean it it is like when prescribed and and used in those kind of settings it's completely safe a lot of people use like the patches which i think might be where some of the information or misinformation comes from being being Mm -hmm. able to absorb it through the skin and cops overdosing and all that bullshit yeah i mean that's at least where my thoughts are and this is like not reading the research but just like talking to my partner's mom who like brought it up and she was like, can't you absorb it through the skin? And I'm like, if it's in the right form and it's in the patch form. Yeah. But like the, the powder it's, it doesn't, you know, you can touch it and you're fine. Yeah. I've seen Dr. Marino talking about that. Can you explain that a little bit, or at least the basics that it has to be created or manufactured basically in the right way to be absorbed in that way. Otherwise, you're not just going to absorb it through the skin if you just happen to touch a powder or something somewhere. So I guess for the people that don't know, there's been kind of like a wave of police officers who basically don't really have much training on the drugs themselves. And unfortunately, that's like another issue 
a lot of the information they have about fentanyl will also come from the misinformation in the media um, and like the fear mongering as well. Um, and we've all seen the, you know, little pictures or media articles about like this much fentanyl can kill you. And there'll be like a little spit next to a, a, a penny or whatever. Um, but it's usually powder form. And so a lot of police who do drug busts, they will find different drugs, including fentanyl. And they will remember that and they will essentially like freak out, which is understandable if you have all this misinformation. Like, I, I mean, I get it. I get the fear. But if they touch it, then they're thinking that, you know, they can just easily inhale it or like easily have it overdose because um, or have themselves overdose just by p- touching it when they do. And that just does not happen with like powder. You have to I'm not sure that like actual chemical process of turning it into like a patch to make it that way but I do know that like I mean our skin and like what's in our mouth are way different and like what we can absorb it would probably be very problematic if you could just like touch anything and absorb it with your skin versus like you know putting something in your mouth so yeah it's uh I honestly think like I've seen some of the videos of the cops and they're just like they're they're freaking out, understandably, if they have a lot of misinformation. They it looks like they're honestly just having panic attacks where they're like still walking, but maybe they're stumbling, they're having issues with breathe, breathing, and then, you know, like their pupils will look fine, you know, they aren't like slurring their words or anything. It's essentially looking like a panic attack, but like again, I don't want to like downgrade people's, you know. I don't I don't mean it that way where like people downgrade people's real issues, but it's definitely not an overdose, clearly. Honestly, even if the cops realize that it's not an overdose, I think it also plays into the role of like how we report it. Because not a lot of people know this, but like if you do go to the hospital, um, so if a cop goes to the hospital because they think they're overdosing, usually right off the bat, um, the physician will give Narcan or naloxone. It's usually just naloxone, which is the generic form of Narcan. That's just like right off the bat, because for people who aren't taking uh, any opioids, it basically has no effect on you. So like there's no harm in giving it to you just in case, really. Yeah. So like, why not? Why not give it in case it is an overdose? And that's what's causing the issue. And so like, you know, if they start feeling better, I mean, I can see them thinking, oh, maybe it was an overdose or um, Mm. not the doctors, but like the cops. Also, just in general, if like, it's reported, you know, from the cops that like they think somebody had an overdose. They took them to the hospital. Sometimes the news reports will just like take that as it was a definite overdose, you know, and it just gets, yeah, real wishy-washy and some of that. I really just wish in general, like journalists would not use the cops as a source. Honestly, like anything relevant to drug use and drug addiction, even relevant to like some of the crime, because like they share so much misinformation when they're talking about different crimes and they're saying it does include drugs. And they're talking about like clearly people are having mental health crises and it's like they assume, you know, oh maybe it's because of this drug or whatever. And it's like, ah, that doesn't even that drug doesn't even cause that. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, even bath salts when I'm thinking of that, because I think bath salts are a stimulant right yeah i don't know much about bath salts like the ones that people talk about in florida i'm not sure if those are actually like the bath salts like amphetamine or it's like mixed with other stuff which i mean any kind of thing that's not from like a pharmacy it's on the street market could be mixed with anything (laughs) but yeah um, but there was fear mongering with that too like i was working in corrections when the bath salts thing started happening and you just see the headlines of oh someone ate this person's 
face off. But then I can't remember actually if it was you or someone else that I read where it might actually be a combination of things and probably not necessarily the drug itself or potentially if it was, maybe it was mixed with a bunch of other things. I think actually Dr. Hart has probably talked about even with the bath salts that it probably was not just the substance that led people to eating people's faces, <laughs> like whatever it was. I mean, drug use in those kind of acts, I mean, drug use in general often starts with having mental conditions. It's always co-occurring. It goes both ways. I mean, like, I think the most common things associated with drug use um, is just depression and anxiety. If you have that and you have a drug that makes you feel better from that, like obviously that can create a problem if you aren't treating the underlying issue. But I mean, it, it goes for any kind of mental health condition and people aren't getting help and they can't in the system that we have. The social determinants of health uh, episode for that, but <laughs> people who are already having severe issues and they may use a stimulant like that or any other kind of drug, um, it can certainly exacerbate those issues, though. So, like, you know, if you trying to think of an example besides anxiety and depression. Trauma. The big one that <laughs> can go inside with us. Yeah. Oh, gosh. People talk about childhood trauma all the time. Uh, yeah. Overuse it. And it's weird because, like, I literally study that in rats. <laughs> uh, yeah. So really, any mental health concern, too. Like, I'm even thinking about some that maybe are more prone to impulsivity. So even if it's not, quote, self-medicating, but there's that impulsive piece to it, for example, like ADHD or borderline personality disorder, for example, bipolar disorder, maybe if you're experiencing mania or something, anything where there's impulsivity, I could see. That's, oh gosh, ADHD and stimulants is such an interesting conversation because people who have it depending on you know the severity and the impulsivity um that could have put you at a higher risk for substance use disorders so people think okay let's not give them a drug that could potentially make them addicted to it that's like the thought process but then at the same time you do want to actually treat that underlying issue so they don't have that problem and i always see this is like on social media and i see i mean People at conferences debate this too about like, well, should we, you know, like be prescribing stimulants then or should we not? And I just, I hate that we have to choose one way or another because everybody is so complex. It may really, really help somebody and it may prevent them from abusing other drugs in a way that will hurt them in the future if they just mm -hmm. treated the underlying ADHD in the first place. And I feel like people just in general, assume, you know, like, because it's a controlled substance, because it has the potential for abuse, you know, like, that immediately means people are going to, like, take their entire medication in one dose and, like, cause a whole bunch of issues when really, like, even if they, stimulants taken prescribed with nothing else in them, a uh, safe supply of that drug, it's not as risky as people think. <laughs> also, a peak ADHD problem would be forgetting to take the medication routinely. Oh, <laughs> I see that meme all the time. And I'm thinking, yes, the people that are concerned about this are probably not actually familiar with ADHD because that is a problem is being able to follow your medication recommendations. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's all that dopamine. <laughs> you guys yes. have the dopamine for that. Seems like everyone lumps a lot of stimulants in with that, but especially that. A lot of people think, oh, if we give stimulants to kids for ADHD or even adults, that you're you're basically just prescribing meth to them. What would you say to that? Oh, God, that's like a conversation where I can't just say like one or two things because I really would like to flip the narrative to the other side and ask why they think methamphetamine is so bad because there's so many misconceptions about methamphetamine. They, they picture usually like skinny uh, people at a hotel selling their body and their mouth is really, really gross, you know, um, which the gross mouth thing for starters, it's called <laughs> uh, cotton mouth when stimulants give you a dry mouth and dry mouth from any drug is going to cause you issues if you don't take care of it. Um, but in general, the difference between methamphetamine and taking your Adderall as prescribed is usually just the root of administration as well. Usually you smoke meth. And for people who are taking Adderall, it's usually taken in a pill form. People do crush it up and snort it and stuff. But in general, you know, but the other thing is, is people who like it, it really just comes from a place of privilege. People who may have um, ADHD and can get prescribed it end up so much better than the people who end up using meth because maybe they don't have, they can't afford the doctor. They get stereotyped um, and assume that they are going to start using a drug. You know, also that what comes with that, I guess, is social determinants of health. But like at the same time, you're more likely to have issues uh, with safe routine housing and being able to like up uh, upkeep with your, you know, maintenance and you know keeping your teeth healthy along with the rest of your body so like i feel like a lot of the stigma just really comes from that like mm-hmm. you know you have to have a home or some place to brush your teeth also food insecurity is a big thing and if you just like you know if you have your dry mouth and you are eating or drinking properly that also causes issues also just in general being able to eat food um because stimulants decrease your appetite yeah meth is I wouldn't say Adderall is as bad as meth. I'd say meth is not as bad as people think, which sounds so wild to say, but I mean, it's true. <laughs> the The biggest risk with meth, I really just think comes down to it being an unregulated supply. You buy it on the street from somebody you don't know. It could have all sorts of different uh, amounts and doses when you take it. could have fentanyl in it have things that you shouldn't be inhaling as well. I'm pretty sure methamphetamine, when it's made, you know, has things like battery acid and paint thinner and stuff like that, you know, when it's made in a meth lab versus taken from a pharmacy. So like all the risks really just come down to that. (laughs) It's a very small chemical structural change too. It's just a methyl group, which like does not, I mean, I guess doesn't mean much, but like it really is not that much different. Gotcha. So from your perspective, the dose makes the poison, which also means that a lot of these substances, including meth, could potentially be used therapeutically if it's in the right delivery system, the right regulations, the right dosages and oversight. Yeah, there's actually, I mean, technically, I mean, we've been talking about Adderall, which is amphetamine, but Technically, there is a prescription methamphetamine. I just can't remember which hmm. medication that is. Um, like, I don't know. There's like a whole bunch. There's Adderall, but then there's also Vyvanse. There's a Zenny's. There's like a whole bunch of 
Ritalin, yeah. Yeah. Ritalin is methylphenidate, but also a stimulant. <laughs> Ooh, I did forget one thing. So a lot of people, um, this is kind of like off topic of like the differences, but a lot of people, when they think of people who use meth, they think that they're using it just to get high and that they're addicted to it. But um, a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness will use meth or just in general, any other stimulant to keep themselves up at night because being homeless is very unsafe. There's usually a lot of violence that comes with it. If you you don't want your stuff stolen, if you're a woman, you don't want to be sexually harassed. You don't want to experience any kind of violence. And that's like a routine thing that I've seen. It's, it's in the literature. It's been talked about on reports in the news. I've like seen people admit to that both in Ohio and Tennessee. <laughs> But it's like something that people don't realize because if you're homeless, a lot of times you can't get in if you are using drugs. Yeah. Yeah. It's out of necessity. I've heard that too for shift workers, for example, or people that have to work overnight shifts and either maybe they somehow can get a prescription for something. But if not, what you got to stay awake. Like maybe you don't have as many choices for jobs. So I could see that definitely being the case too. I mean, I know they prescribe modafinil to medical residents and I know you and I have talked about it just so everyone knows I'm on modafinil because I have narcolepsy and it seems interesting because it's technically also a stimulant, just not high up on the schedule list and not as, I don't know, not as big or significant in like the stimulant effects, I guess, as Adderall, you would know more than me. And also as a long half-life. So people, they give that to residents who don't have narcolepsy. And this is fine. This is just common practice because they have to work insane hours. Oh my God. Yeah. I, um, when I worked for the Navy for a short year doing research with them, um, there was a study being done for um, pilots who they didn't want to fall asleep and they were going to be working really long hours or really weird hours and they would prescribe them modafinil. Um, I thought that was so interesting um, to use it for like such a, a purpose like that. The only time I had heard of modafinil before that really I felt like was um, Silicon Valley people who like use it. Uh, modafinil, I don't think... From the reports that I've seen, it just doesn't have as much of a euphoric effect. Is that uh, why it's scheduled differently then? Because I've seen it written that it's less likely to be abused than Adderall. They both have like a stimulating effect, but the rationale is that because it has less of that euphoria associated with it. And also because I guess it's harder to get that it's not as, quote, like risky as Adderall or unsafe. Yeah, I'd say, I mean... It, that definitely plays a role in like keeping it where it's been. I also think just in general, who is associated with using it also probably plays a role mm -hmm. in how it was scheduled. Like, I mean, a lot of people, when they hear about modafinil, hear about it, how I did, they think of like Silicon Valley people using it to like work all night to create their fancy tech stuff that I don't understand. Uh, but in, in general, it's also, it's been used in the military, so have stimulants. It's used also for that. Yeah, just in general, I think the way that that drug came about. At the same time, though, it kind of concerns me because, like, I, I haven't read much about it recently, but 
I don't think we know the mechanism of action yet, even for modafinil compared to like how much we know about stimulants. Like I remember, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Was it both methamphetamine and amphetamine target the um, dopamine transporter, which leads to the release of like excess dopamine. And it also releases norepinephrine, which is the neurotransmitter that like uh, increases your heart rate and blood flow. So where else do I have? Oh yeah. Also, well, yeah, it can lead to a decrease in the dopamine um, transporters expression and serotonin transporter expression if overused. So, like, that's super depressing. But I haven't seen that much for modafinil for long term. And I'm not even sure if we know exactly, like, what it targets. I think we just have, like, a general understanding that it's a stimulant that might work a little bit different. But I have a feeling it's probably very, very similar to methamphetamine and amphetamine. <laughs> Same risks. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, I mean, we're even talking about prescription substances, but that over time, so you're talking about receptors and things like that. So for people that are listening that don't know, like for some substances that Paige will, I'm sure, get into and know way more than me about if you have, if you take a prescription or a drug, like recreationally even, and you take it consistently over time, your brain kind of thinks you don't necessarily need to make some of those happy hormones as much yourself because you're getting it from this outside source, which then creates, as you can imagine, its own host of problems. I've heard that with ecstasy too. So can you talk, I guess, more in general about this aspect and some risks long-term? Uh, yeah. So like when you take a drug, it will cause a release say of dopamine or another neurotransmitter and then uh, will bind to a receptor. So like if you take say an opioid um, like oxycodone or heroin, dopamine will release and it will reach the reward pathway in the brain. It'll essentially go to like the VTA, the ventral tegmental area at first, which is going to like send it through the amygdala um, and the prefrontal cortex. But the way it does that when it releases the dopamine is um, dopamine will latch onto a receptor and it can be an agonist or an antagonist. So like uh, opioids are an agonist and that means it will bind to the opioid will bind to the opioid receptor. And that means it will enhance the chemical messengers and it will increase the firing rate and stuff like that. Antagonists. So I'm thinking of like, naloxone since we did i guess opioids that will bind to the receptor and block that from happening and both drugs i mean antagonist is not necessarily associated with like anti-addiction or anything both drugs that are of different uh uses not even just abused um or can cause an addiction they work that way by like binding and causing like an inhibitory or an excitatory response by like, you know, causing more firing, which is like an excitatory neurotransmitter or like an inhibitory response, which prevents that from happening. Kind of depends on like what drug, but like in general, that's usually how it works and through the reward pathway. Do they all have the similar risk across the board or I guess potential things to consider of your brain long-term not thinking you need to do whatever it does on its own naturally? Oh, yeah. that. So I think the risk that comes with that is the ones that act quickly and leave your body quickly, something like cocaine. Mm -hmm. 
because then your body's going to get used to it a lot quicker if you need to use it more often. I wouldn't say that like, you know, just because using methamphetamine for an extended period of time is going to cause the three-year issue of having like enough dopamine and serotonin in your brain like that one. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it really just depends honestly on the study and the drug because like studies will say different things because they'll be done in rats and mice and you know it's not like you can exactly do some of that in humans. You had mentioned MDMA. Yeah so that one I know it's like it mainly releases serotonin it's considered like molly or ecstasy. I think that's how a lot of people know it. That one, for sure, if you use it too much, it can cause issues with like having enough serotonin over time. I would have to look more into it specifically, like the length and time. But I'm pretty sure a lot of people may understand this if they've taken it. If you take it um, and you enjoy your night out or whatever you did and you felt real good and the next day you feel like absolute shit, there's a chemical reason for that. <laughs> So and you're being flooded with it as opposed to it being like a, like a small dosage, smaller dosage over time. Yeah. MDMA in general, though, I mean, like methylene dioxy, methamphetamine, MDMA, <laughs> that's like the pure version of it. But like usually when you buy it, because it's not like most people are buying it from the pharmacy, it's usually cut with stuff. I think it's one of the most commonly cut drugs, has lots of different things in it, including Adderall. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, that would make, that would make, that would make more sense. And I think Mm -hmm. I've seen, I mean, a lot of the substances that we consider to be, they are illegal, not considered to be illegal, or there are different punitive consequences for that. Recently, they've been a hot topic for treatment for mental health concerns, including MDMA. I think recently there have been clinical trials, but of course, the big ones recently are like psilocybin and ketamine and all of those other things. Oh yeah. That it's such a cool um, area of research. I would say though, that like the way people probably hear about it in the news is not necessarily, uh, they like, they paint a picture where it's like, it's going to cure all. And it's certainly not that it certainly works faster than SSRIs and what you use for depression and anxiety. And it does have really, really promising results. Same thing with ketamine as well. But a lot of times, you know, that in, that doesn't last. People do have to go back. Some people who they say they haven't used for like a very long time for months on end may end up starting to use a year later after that. And the way people report it is like people take it and it just cures their addiction, which is not how it works. But regardless of that, though, it's like, still super promising it's just it's not going to be a cure-all people are still going to have to use things like methadone and suboxone and all of those other drugs that keep people on like a maintenance phase of having that in their system but yeah it's pretty cool though and going back to something you said earlier about i think you were talking about methamphetamine but just not knowing what's in the supply it seems like that is the most concerning thing at this point as far as getting any probably any substance on the street now it seems like a lot of things are with they're so strong or they're cut with fentanyl it seems like maybe even the dealers don't even realize what they're necessarily cut with which is very confusing to me because why would we want our customers to overdose like that so there's just a lot of confusion about what you're getting and it seems like there's an alarming amount now even compared to a few years ago of some type of fentanyl being in everything now. Um, yeah, a lot. A lot of that I think is 
it's really just due to targeting those drugs. So people have to get creative and do really mm. sketchy things to continue using. So they take really, the risk. Yes. I, I really hate the term, though, like when people say it's an opioid epidemic or opioid crisis. Like for one, I mean, it's not. It's an overdose crisis. But the other thing is, is uh, I mean, like. I would say it's you, it's really considered fentanyl poisoning. Poisoning. It's like a mass poisoning event. Like, of course, people feared heroin. You could say heroin was like poisoning people, but I don't mean it that way. It's like people are using drugs, and heroin is not as strong as fentanyl, and they're expecting that. And like, just just like anything else that you take, something is in there that you weren't expecting, and you got poisoned by something that could kill you. And that's a lot of what happens with fentanyl. Gosh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the risks of drug use just in general comes down to like having unsafe, unregulated supply that you don't know what's in it. It's, yeah, it's a lot. That's why you should always use fentanyl test strips if you're going to use drugs, because uh, even if you don't use opioids, I mean, you can have fentanyl in your cocaine that you, you know, do at a party or fentanyl in the drugs that you use at um like uh what's it called when people like go to those concert weekends um i'm not blanking on that music festivals uh people go to those and do all sorts of different drugs and like i mean people usually buy them from people they meet there or they bring them in and they have to like hide them someplace but those are not coming usually from the pharmacy either so like people have died at music festivals and just at parties in general because they think they're doing cocaine or MDMA or something else, and it's got fentanyl in it. The number of overdoses in 2020 skyrocketed, and I'm sure some of those were intentional and suicides. Um, And I know it's really hard to probably differentiate that, especially since you don't know what you're getting. You could be suicidal and not acting on that in that moment, and then you get the wrong supply. But I'm just thinking out loud. I'm curious, was that also a time when more fentanyl was put in supplies or like, is that going alongside it that we're finding more car fentanyl, which, yeah, like all these other strains of fentanyl as well to obviously mental health crises because of gestures vaguely 2020. (laughs) Just just vaguely, yes. Oh, God. That year was insane. I feel like uh, I hated the narrative people were talking about where it's like, we got to choose between opening up and like killing people through COVID versus like closing and killing people. It's like, you, you didn't have to do that. Oh my God. We, we made it so difficult to access addiction treatments just in general, more difficult than it already was. Oh God. A lot of people they go to still have like an extreme amount of stigma towards people who use drugs or people who did have a substance use disorder and are trying to like, you know, stay on methadone maintenance um, where they'll just assume that they're coming in with drugs that they're, you know, not taking it appropriately. Just, it's just a mess. And then when we had the pandemic and they couldn't figure out what they were going to do and how they were going to do things, like a lot of them, there were different ways that people did this. Like, I wouldn't say it's completely the same in the U S and among different States, but like some of them were good. They, they gave prescriptions for take home. Some people uh, did deliveries. Some people completely shut down, but then as time went on, you know, we had like the issue with getting any kind of supplies anywhere where like people just run out. We have all sorts of issues that are coming out with like the Adderall shortage and stuff like that. 
and in general, it's just like a population that people ignore and some people even enjoy seeing others suffer from that. So like a lot of people also turn back to like the street supply that they were on because methadone maintenance is not something that like, you know, you can just like take for a week and wean yourself off to get off of withdrawal. It's something that like usually takes a very long time. Some people are on it for the rest of their lives. Some people are on it and they do want to decrease slowly. Um, once you're taking off of it, it's similar to just being taken off any other opioid. You are going to go through withdrawal. They're going to get dope sick and it can be like really, really violently sick and ill. And of course people want to avoid that. And so of course people went back to like, their dealers that they had before, people that they knew before. Even before the pandemic, I mean, like, the way a lot of them get treated there is, like, they'll try and decrease their dose way too early or they'll just, like, think somebody's sketchy and then give them less than they should. And so, of course, if they're feeling dope sick or going through withdrawal because the methadone isn't holding them over all day, they may go and buy more drugs. And then they have a positive drug test and they can't get it. So it just, like, you know in the pandemic in 2020 just created like a horrible event of like people having issues getting it more than they usually already do. People going back to the street supply that's very unsafe and had a lot more fentanyl in it. People also had to find different dealers because like similar to everybody else, you know, dealers had an issue getting around during the pandemic. (laughs) So it was just a lot. And like, I think, you know, it's kind of obvious through all of that, why there were more overdoses. Isn't that why, at least partly why there has been a quote opioid crisis to begin with is because the prescriptions that were given and then suddenly there were crackdowns and then doctors had their hands tied and then patients were maybe still in pain and didn't have great alternatives or maybe they were literally having withdrawal symptoms. And then it like translated to going to the street supply. I've seen some different reports on that, but I'm just curious your thoughts. Oh my God. Yes. Uh, This is like, uh, it's so frustrating that people don't see like how one thing led to the other, but people who have uh, chronic pain, you know, like if they go and they get an opioid prescription back when we like prescribe them way too often, um, we didn't know the risks, so maybe they did get addicted to them, used them way too often, whatever it was. There were pill mills as well where people who did not really have a license had a license and they were just like selling them. And just all of that, clearly people recognized an issue. So instead of maybe helping the people who were addicted to opioids, they shut down a lot of these places. They would shut down doctors they thought were prescribing too many uh, which is another prob- problematic issue. Um, but they shut down the pill mills, uh, and they just basically had like a massive, like cutback of opioids, which included making a lot of physicians scared to prescribe these medications. Some of them, and I mean, like, I feel like everybody's experienced this to some extent, but like people who were completely fine on them were all of a sudden having their doctor cut them off cold turkey. Uh, they would like tell them that they needed to like decrease their amount. Even if you are using just out of prescription, I mean, being cut off from a pill mill also really, really sucks. They just basically cut down those people. Doctors were afraid to prescribe them. And so like people had nowhere else to go. So I want to just kind of wrap this piece up with, if you're hearing about fentanyl, 
it seems like a fair comparison would be like birth control. You can take it in pill form or you can have it in a patch. And just because you touch your birth control pill does not mean that it is going to help with whatever you take your birth control medicine for. So with fentanyl, if you touch the powder, you're not necessarily going to overdose. And so I guess just think about it like birth control. That's the only comparison I got on the top of my head. That's a great one. Yes. Perfect. Part two, talking about Paige Lemon's area of expertise. Talked about social isolation before, but opioids, aka narcotics. I know a lot of these words are thrown around. And can you explain why those words are used interchangeably? And recently, I've seen people that are experts in the field saying, use the word opioid, not narcotic. So I'm kind of curious about those words being used interchangeably. I actually don't even know where the word narcotic came from. So if you could shed some light on that and maybe why people want to use opioid instead of narcotic. Yeah, so opioids are painkillers. I guess that would be what most people say just in like day-to-day talk is painkillers. So it's like oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxycotton, (laughs) the brand name, um, tramadol. I know everybody hates that one. Heroin and fentanyl, uh, the big known ones now. And opioids bind to the opioid receptors. And so, yeah, that's why they're called opioids. As for calling them different things, I would say call them opioids if you're preferably like talking about opioids or opiates. I know some people say opiates as well. I think opioids is the ones that are prescribed and then opiates are just like all of them. So like it can include the ones that are not prescribed. I'm not exactly 100% sure on that, though. Might need to double check that. Yeah, I guess. In the drug class, right? (laughs) We're going to talk about that. Yeah, because anesthetics, I mean, technically those treat pain as well. Anesthesia, I guess. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're unconscious. I guess you can't really feel pain. But I'm assuming that those have a difficult, a, a different chemical process, like anesthetics versus your Oxycontin, for example? I guess it would depend on what kind, but I know a lot of um, physicians or like if you're in a hospital for something treated for pain, um, instead of giving you an opioid, they'll try and give you like an anesthetic or they'll give you a um, uh, antihistamine for a pain. Yeah, Yeah, you probably heard about this too. It just like, I feel like for the most part, it just puts people to sleep. Unless they're like, you know, very used to it. But (laughs) can I tell like a really random story? Please. I had one in the back of my mind about the antihistamine myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But uh, so on antihistamines, one time when I was really, really sick, I went to the doctor and I had like an x-ray done and some tests done. Um, It was due to like a whole bunch of digestive issues I had. But I was saying that I was like in a lot of pain And I did not really even think about how they're going to be like, oh, she's just searching for pain meds and it's like stomach issues, Mm -hmm. see it and stuff. And like, obviously for stomach stuff, you don't want painkillers because it's going to like stop you up. It causes a lot of (laughs) digestive issues to be with and I did not need that. But I was trying to like communicate to them that I was in a lot of pain. And so they gave me Benadryl. 
I know I've used like Benadryl. I tried it once when I was younger and it like knocked me out. Um, and they gave me the like IV version of it. So and I don't know if they just like did not take into consideration that I'm, I'm like a smaller person. So as soon as they gave it to me, I could not stay awake the entire time. And thank God my boyfriend was with me because he had to like advocate for everything. Cause like during the x-ray, I was completely knocked out. The CT scan, I was completely knocked out. I remember none of it. And then even worse, I got home and I just like couldn't stay up. And so my boyfriend just put me to bed and I would go like in and out of like waking up and going back to sleep. And I thought it had only been a day, but turns out I was asleep for three days. They put me to sleep for three days. <laughs> oh my That's God. Less exciting than that, <laughs> but similar. So I got into a car accident in grad school and left me with um, some mild, actually not mild. It was pretty intense post-concussive syndromes and including migraines. So I went to a primary care doctor on campus who prescribed me tramadol, which I do want to hear your thoughts on that in a second, because it sounded like there was a whole rabbit hole that we could go on. But when I went to the ER, because I never had migraines before, and I'm thinking, and I'm very disoriented, and I'm like, what is going on? They gave me the IV Benadryl with an anti-nausea medication. They put them together. And I thought this is stupid. I'm okay. I'm just, no, I fought for my life against that Benadryl and it took, I mean, it worked, it did work. And then the not like it, it actually did work. And they were trying to explain it to me, but I was fighting for my life. I underestimated that thing, but listen, I don't know if it's just cause it's IV or the dose. I, I kept fighting it. I stood absolutely no chance. So, so I'm there with you. And then back to the primary care doctor. He, I've been prescribed tramadol before. I don't do well with opioids in general and except tramadol is not as bad. This was an old school doc, not up to date on concussions and all that. But anyway, he said, Oh no, we can prescribe you tramadol. That's super safe. That's not a narcotic. It's not addictive at all. And I thought, I feel like that might not be up to date in the research. And when you were going, when you were talking about tramadol a few minutes ago, you said, I know people don't like that one or have feelings about that one. So I'm curious to hear about that. Oh my gosh. I feel like whenever I talk to somebody who used tramadol, whether they got a prescription, they used it normally, or they like abuse it to get high off of it, whatever. They all say that like the side effects are way worse and the high is very, very minimal. And then on top of it, there's like a threshold that people get for um, seizures. I forget what the dosing is. I think it's like 300 to 400 milligrams, I think is like the uh, highest dose. And then it gets into like the danger zone of what uh, could cause a seizure. Um, And then obviously it's really, really bad if you're like growing tolerant to them and then you get to that point and then people being weaned off of them have to worry about that as well. So, <laughs> um, Yeah. How long did you take tramadol? It was a few days. Cause I also had whiplash at the time and it was before I had all my medical diagnoses. Mm-hmm. So it helped with that. And then it was after that, there were other medications that they put me on that were not, not an op- opioid. So it's fine. And we're all fine now. But I'm glad that I was not taking it long enough to potentially develop seizures. So everyone, just FYI, there is apparently a danger zone thing situation happening with trauma and seizures. Okay. 
The other um, medication that can cause, well, I wouldn't say cause seizures. It's the opposite. Um, So benzodiazepines, you probably already know about this, but like they can be prescribed to prevent seizures or stop seizures from happening. And so uh, a lot of people who will get such a high tolerance, they won't be able to wean off of it. They'll have to go like just a very minuscule amount down each time. And it'll take forever to wean off of benzodiazepines because of that. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Yeah. For my listeners, benzos are things like Xanax. is probably one that most people are familiar with. And from my understanding, I don't have a ton of experience working in substance use, but I, I do have some and I've also worked in corrections in Florida. So there was a lot of fun mm-hmm. things happening there. The two biggest concerns that people had, like if they're coming in and they're experiencing withdrawal symptoms is alcohol and benzos. And can you explain a bit more about that? Because I think they're similar chemically, right? Like they can increase the effects of the other if you take both at the same time, and they both seem to be dangerous if you withdraw from them beyond like just dope sick, like I feel miserable, and I want to die, like you, you can die from these, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the well, both alcohol and benzos are central nervous system depressants. So they like make you feel at least benzos make you feel calm and sleepy by like, uh, facilitating the um, the GABA transmitters. It is um, inhibitory. And the thing that sucks about benzos is a lot of people mix them with other drugs. And sometimes they don't do it on purpose. Sometimes it's just in the drug supply. Like, I don't know if you've heard of um, benzo dope, which is really common in Canada, where people will buy opioids, but then benzos will be in it. And then they're, they're much more likely to actually overdose and they won't remember a single thing. It's pretty bad. But mixing benzos with anything else, just in general, that's like a central nervous system depressant is really, really risky. Benzos alone, I feel like are, I mean, for the most part, they're safe. Like it's harder to overdose on them. You have to take a shit time, but it's the mixing that makes it so scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you're drunk and you pop pop a zanny back there, that can be really concerning because they're both similar chemically. And so one can, like the Xanax could exacerbate the effects of the alcohol and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a common overdose, alcohol and benzos. Yeah, and then withdrawing from them, those were the two that people were concerned about was alcohol and benzos. It's like, okay, yes, you might feel like you want to die if you're if you're coming off Oxycontin, for example. But with, you know, if you're on a benzo, and or alcohol for a while, and you're withdrawing, you can die. Like anywhere that I've worked, even corrections where they, let's be honest, they don't really care about anyone. They're still like, no, we have to send them to the hospital. Like they have to, they have to have help to withdraw for those two in particular. Yeah, those are the ones that are, yeah, at risk of a seizure and a seizure can kill you. So that is that the big concern is the seizure aspect of it? Yeah, I think for the most part, that's the biggest concern is the seizures. For opioids, yeah, with withdrawing from them, it's like, this is kind of controversial because some people say, well, you can die from withdrawing from it and going, uh, being dope sick. But it's kind of like the way you could die is not necessarily the withdrawal itself, but it's usually due to <laughs> neglect after going through withdrawal. So like dehydration or something like that. Oh, makes sense. Okay. Well, like, I guess for 
<laughs> one example, <laughs> just to bring up a poop joke like I always do. I mean, <laughs> opioids always constipate people. And I mean, if you're going to go through withdrawal, you're going to have a lot of diarrhea. And if you are drinking water, <laughs> there's just one example. <laughs> makes sense. It makes, yeah. makes sense. It was funny, but I just like, <laughs> poop jokes get me. <laughs> Every time we love our poop jokes, they help get us through. And we're talking about a pretty serious topic here. So I feel like, you know, that's to be like depressing. Yeah. (laughs) It's important. It's important. I know we talked a bit last time about, I mean, obviously fentanyl is the big one. The news headlines, fentanyl is in everything. It's in our water supply. It's like Mm -hmm. dogs are overdosing, which I saw a post the other day about how apparently police dog, they were talking about police dogs, but dogs have a higher tolerance which I didn't know and so well, it's I, didn't know I didn't it was Ryan Marino that made that post interesting yeah so a lot of the fentanyl a lot of the fentanyl concerns that people have etc and the we talked a bit about the drug classification system too and how a lot of them don't really seem to make sense where they are in the drug classification system and how that's <laughs> modified or how that's coming about. Cause I think cannabis is pretty high up on that list, right? The classes. Yeah, it is just a, a mess. I know that they're trying to like um, change cannabis and it's like a whole process and it's ridiculous that it's taken this long to change the drug classes. But I mean, in my opinion, they should just get rid of the drug classes completely because they're all made up by the DEA, which does not use any kind of like scientific expertise or medical professionals in the field to decide drug classes and their risks. It's basically like deciding which ones are most likely to be what they would consider abused or addictive, and then combining that with which ones actually have any kind of medicinal benefits. So like things like uh, psychedelics that we're looking into for mental health treatments, all of that, those are like really, really high up there because they don't have what they say, don't, don't have any kind of medicinal benefit, but they clearly do. And they're also not addictive at all I mean like you can certainly try to get addicted to LSD but like you're gonna get a high tolerance really really quick (laughs) and then yeah a lot of them like I won't go into like ridiculously detailed stuff but like a lot of them were based on um, just the war on drugs era the DEA causes just in general like a lot of issues that actually make the problem worse like and methadone is a pretty controversial topic still, it seems. Ooh, methadone, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So can you explain a little bit about like methadone and it's like why we have methadone clinics, I guess, to begin with and and what we're seeing with that? Yeah. So methadone is a full opioid agonist um, that has like a long half-life. So people um, will get prescribed it for opioid use disorder and it essentially makes it so they don't have to go through withdrawal. Well, at least what people want is for them to go through treatment without having to go through withdrawal. And then they want people to like decrease their methadone dose slowly. Um, That itself I can get into later, but um, methadone is great. It saved a lot of people's lives, but there's a lot of issues with getting access to it. 
So one really aggravating thing is that uh, methadone is not allowed to be prescribed in pharmacies. People have to get them at methadone clinics. And so they have to go, people who have to go to methadone clinics, they can't get a prescription, like a take-home prescription. They have to um, go there every single day. Uh, It's usually like super early in the morning to be able to take it for many reasons, whether you're like a, just like a high population area where there's going to be a long line. A lot of them are like really, really badly run. Like they never have enough doses. People who run them stigmatize the people really, really bad and they won't give doses. And so they'll have to go there at like five in the morning every single day. Meaning if you have kids, getting them to school is difficult. If you want to take a trip, that's also really difficult. And you usually have to go there and take a drug test, which is an issue in part because a lot of people are not prescribed an adequate methadone dose. They still go through some kind of withdrawal. And so a lot of people will have to supplement it, which is just ridiculous. Like just give them the the adequate dose of methadone they they need. I mean, physicians are always trying to like act like cops and they're kind of put this put in this situation where I don't mean to blame physicians specifically, but they are kind of put in this position where they have to act like the cops or else they're at risk of losing their license. On top of it, so yeah, if your drug test comes back positive for something else, they usually turn you away and then you're really, really screwed. So you got to go find something now from a dealer that's a lot more risky, more likely to have fentanyl on it. Also, they force people to take it there in the clinic because they're afraid that people are going to take the dose and give it to other people. They're afraid of diversion. <laughs> that's usually like what it's called. When you when you talk to physicians about that, like they you know, it's again where, where they try and like just act like cops and make sure you don't give it to other people, which in part, like I understand why. But at the same time, a lot of people try and get help and get methadone illegally because it's so hard to go to a methadone clinic every single day. Like you take a trip, go visit somebody, go to a freaking funeral or anything. And you have to ask a physician who already just in general hates drug users and stereotypes them bad. They're going to automatically think you're lying. You can find methadone in the street supply as well. Ah. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so talking about treatments, I guess, for a lot of these different things, it's difficult. I know one thing that you've advocated for is testing sites, having fentanyl strips. A lot of people really advocate for Narcan and everyone ideally mm-hmm. being kind of uh, trained in how to administer that, maybe having that on hand. So what are your thoughts on those? Yeah. I mean, like if you live in a high risk area or even you don't and you just like, like it's 2023, it's a different era at this point. Like if you go to a party that where there's cocaine and you want to do it, or you don't want your friends to overdose and die and risk it, you should like, you should have fentanyl test strips. You should definitely have some naloxone or Narcan around. It's awkward to admit that you have to do that and you have to be a buzzkill at parties to test it. And I totally get that. It seems uncool, but like, it's everywhere now, right? Yeah. At this point, I mean, like in in some places, it's ridiculously hard to even find heroin anymore. It's just all fentanyl. Um, and people are now becoming addicted to fentanyl instead or have a tolerance to fentanyl. So yeah, their tolerance is really, really high. It's really, really bad. Fentanyl test strips are wonderful. I'm pretty sure they started off as like a drug test, like a pee test. But basically, you can like take a small amount of your supply and mix it in some water um, in there for like 15 seconds and then wait. And then if there's two lines, it's negative. If there's only one line, then it's positive. And those are, they're not foolproof because like, you know, if you have 
a small bag of cocaine and you use a tiny amount, you know, the fentanyl could be like in a, in a different part of the bag of cocaine. It sucks, but like at the same time, at least you're taking some sort of measure. I would prefer people buy like an entire test. Like, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say this yet, but like I'm working with the bunk police on a video that's going to be published about how to uh, use their tests. But there's a lot of different companies out there, including them, where you can get like an entire full test to see like not only if there's fentanyl in it, but also um, what it is you're getting in general. Because like Mm. MDMA is probably the worst one where you get those ecstasy pills and it's like there might be some MDMA in there, but uh, more likely than not, it's probably um, at somebody's Adderall prescription and just a whole bunch of other stuff. So really just like, you know, it's a good idea to test in general, especially now. People think that overdosing and fentanyl is just an issue of people who are considered addicts, but it's really like everybody. If you do any kind of drug, I mean, you could be at risk for it. It sucks. <laughs> it's really, really bad. Yeah. You've talked about before, I think a lot of people have that. Let's say you're even just, you're living the night out, going to a bachelor bachelorette party or something, and you're wanting an upper, you're wanting like Coke or something else, or maybe you're wanting MDMA. You're not looking for fentanyl or anything like that, but it sounds like it's just gotten mixed in everything things that are not even necessarily similar like you're not even going for that feeling or that drug at all but it seems like it and I don't know how much of that's fear but it does seem like it's kind of everywhere yeah it's difficult because I mean it is the black market the gray or shadow market or whatever you want to call it I mean everybody's different and everybody's you know doing different things and like it actually provides this uh, an opioid versus just like mixing it with baking soda or Miralax or something like that that looks like a, the similar powder and but again nothing's perfect that is something that like in general harm reduction workers kind of want to try and push people into doing is like if you're selling then like test your shit before you sell it uh, it saves somebody's life and it also saves you from going to jail because we all know that they'll literally tie you to murder for that <laughs> which is another issue but And I'm glad you brought up harm reduction, this philosophy that, well, number one, not one thing works for everyone, just cutting everything off, being really punitive, this very all or nothing thinking and abstinence and all of that may not be feasible, it might be fear mongering, all these things. And so harm reduction, I think was first used of substance use, psychologists use it now for a lot of different things, but basically what it sounds like trying to reduce the amount of harm. So that would be like a methadone clinic, for example, or these test strips, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Harm reduction, it has this saying, uh, I guess, depending on who you ask, meeting people where they're at. So rather mm-hmm. than doing what we do now and arrest people and then make them choose between you go to treatment, abstinence-based treatment only, or you go to jail, mm-hmm we rather meet them where they're at and say, well, if you need clean needles to prevent you from getting HIV or hep C, then here's clean needles. And there's just like a lot of different ways that you can look at harm reduction. I know NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is under the NIH, funds harm reduction to an extent, (laughs) like the Biden crack pipe era (laughs) during COVID-19. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. But I mean, like essentially providing clean supplies is a good idea if you want to prevent the spread of disease. On a bigger scale, um, the National Harm Reduction Coalition and a lot of other people who work in it, they see it as a much bigger thing, like an entire movement. Like you don't have to be abstinence-based 
you also don't have to quit drugs entirely. Drugs are not evil. There's not a good bad, a good drug and a bad drug. Like we all see cocaine is like socially acceptable. And then like using heroin is not socially acceptable, which makes people so uncomfortable when they think about it. And I understand why, because we've all been taught the, you know, the war on drugs propaganda, but it's kind of like an entire movement to have respect bodily autonomy and just have a say in policy and what affects drug users in general. That reminds me of, I know we, we talked before coming on about Carl Hart and there are a lot of controversial pieces to that. Theoretically, you could quote microdose on heroin or meth or like all these, and, and that would be okay. And you're not necessarily going to get addicted. It's not dare. And you're going to try it one time and you're just hooked for life and you're going to die next week and you're going to get it from a stranger. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on like just that kind of aspect. Yeah. I don't know if I've read any, any of his books, but like I've seen him in interviews and stuff and I know he's a very controversial figure. And so like to preface this, I do really appreciate his work. He is an academic and he is trying to take his research and his knowledge outside of academia, which is what we all want. We don't want people to just stay in their academic bumble and only talk to other researchers. He really does provide, he's a neuroscientist, I'm pretty sure. He really does provide like a good understanding without the biases of different drugs and their risks, not having any drug be illegal. So just like essentially ending the war on drugs, which like a lot of people want. But that's, that's just the thing is a lot of people only see Carl Hart as like this public figure who is really high up there and respected and very smart, which he is, but they only see that they only see him because he's the only one in the public image. And so people think he's just like this random one person who believes this, that's it. And so like my aggravation is not towards Dr. Carl Hart at all. I really appreciate his work, but what I, what drives me nuts is like, there's an entire harm reduction movement that has been like saying this for years. There's a lot of people who have been using drugs and like have been getting arrested and stuff. And like, you know, there's a whole bunch of racism and classism in there and just the entire mass incarceration of just anybody who uses drugs that are especially those drugs that are super stigmatized have been uh, people have been advocating to end that for years. I mean, and we're just like not listening to them because they're not high up academics that are extremely smart and writing fancy books and talking at fancy lectures and stuff and going out of the way. So I really wish Dr. Carl Hart would like highlight that more because he kind of comes off as like, this is just his idea and he's the brilliant one, which like, I'm sure he is, <laughs> but you know, there's just like, there's so much more to it. And I think that would also help the movement because people look at him as like just an outsider with some crazy ideas and they have no idea that like, there's people that have been talking about this forever. Yeah. Yeah. So because he's the only science communicator or the only person kind of talking about this, it seems like and he's in the, you know, I think he was on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of times, actually. Some other, he does press, he does academic and the science communication stuff with just your everyday person that's not in academia, like you said. So then it's hard not to assume then as the everyday person, he's revolutionary and he's the only one that's focusing on this in academia too, not just, you know, everyday people that are using, which of course they're not going to be listened to because of the stigma associated with that. But even, 
people, people in, I mean, it's your field, like people in your field. Yeah. I do really appreciate that. Like there are academics out there that are aware of that. Cause there are a lot of people, I really hate to say this, but there's a lot of people that I work with and that work in this field that have not undergone like the unlearning process of all the drug war propaganda that we were told to believe. So a lot of them, like you might think it's not a big deal because we're working in biomedical research. It's very uh, molecular heavy. You know, my lab looks at gene expression of different genes like the opioid receptor and stuff like that. But it does matter because a lot of the times the way you interpret your results are like, oh, this drug that we're studying is bad. So these results must be bad. And there's something wrong with the experiment when the rats don't come out as like more harmed by the drug versus not <laughs> or actually benefited from the drug kind of thing and setting up the experiments as well. I don't, yeah, I don't want to call any, call out any specific academics, but I know one where I had to even explain the concept of harm reduction. Like he did not even know that syringe uh, exchange services were a thing to prevent the spread of diseases for people that use needles and just like some people, so like, I, yeah, I don't want to call any specific academics, but there was this one person who like really believed that it drugs just turn you into like a person that is always going to be stealing from other people when they're always going to be lying. And a lot of people don't understand that like when people who are tolerant to opioids and they're going to go through a withdrawal if they're not on them, they have to find some way to get it. They're very eager. And if you would just like give them their supply, like give them a prescription for it, deal with the treatment later, or don't let them not be abstinent based and just use the drug. But like they, if they have the drug, they're not going to go rob somebody for $10 to go, to go buy a bag of heroin. <laughs> like I had to explain that that is the reason why people are stealing and not just like, you know, it's just, they're all just like turning into like horrible liars. <laughs> That right there is that that moment in TV shows and movies where they say the name. That is peak revealing the ivory tower. <laughs> You're so detached. Yes, they will study this and literally have no background in it. No, they don't know anybody because they usually come from a privileged lifestyle where if anybody did struggle, they got treatment right away kind of thing. I mean, also a lot of them, they don't go into research specifically being like, I want to study drug addiction or substance use disorder. They usually start off something they're interested in. Like in my field, a lot of them are interested in genetics. There's people in my department um, that'll do cancer genetics and stuff relevant to that. Like somebody's doing sickle cell disease, but they'll also have a grant on substance use disorders that they know very little about, but there's a lot of funding uh, that goes specifically to NIDA because drug addiction is so bad and overdose is so bad. So like it is one of the more highly funded areas of research. And so, you know, if you want to fund your lab and you want to do research, like that is a good way to fund it is like, if you know at least some amount about it and you want to like look at some sort of gene then set up an experiment, but they don't realize how much they don't know. That's a good point too. And I'm glad that sickle cell disease is being looped in there. Fun fact, I have a practicum and a pediatric sickle cell clinic. Um, it was actually hematology oncology clinic, but they had each day was dedicated to a different subspecialties. And that was one of the things is you would see in real time, these kids come in, they obviously become adolescents. And when they have a pain crisis, so for people that don't know, like it's extremely pain, depending on the type of sickle cell disease that you have, like 
it's really painful. And if it's not bad enough to get a transfusion, which you would not want that to happen, but you're just, you're stuck having this pain and there really aren't, at least when I was working there. So there may be better, I hope there are better treatments now, but you would watch in real time. They had to go to the ER for pain crises. The only thing that can help is opioids during that time. It doesn't mean they're on them maybe constantly, like they have to be maybe for antibiotics or something like that. But that's the only thing that we have really in those cases. And so you would see the switch when they hit around 15 or 16, you have an adolescent who is not, I mean, exclusively, but most likely to be black going in for extreme pain same medical chart. Like you have that. It's the same hospital. You got access to the chart. And there were a few times where I watched the hematologist, the physician that sees these kids, rip the ER physician, a new one after she would find out about this. And I grabbed my popcorn. It was the most amazing. (laughs) That physician on physician violence, I was here for it. But that's a good point is like, it's that assumption. Okay. So they're drug seeking. So I'm glad you brought that up because it gets complicated. There's a lot of people who, yeah, live with chronic pain and like during the era where all the physicians were basically like forced to have all of their patients just cut off because they didn't want to get in trouble. You know, like a lot of them had nowhere to turn to. And if you are desperate for pain relief or you need a drug, any drug, no matter what, if you need it and you can't get it because your physician won't prescribe it or it's illegal or whatever, you're going to find a way to get it. And that's why a lot of people went to the street supply of drugs rather than going to a physician. And then that's how they ended up actually getting addicted to something because they didn't know the dose. They didn't know exactly what was in it. And that's how they also end up overdosing. It's just like you could have had a safe supply of the drug, but you had to take it away from them and then you actually made it worse chronic pain and then having to take opioids and being able to keep it. My partner's mom is like in that situation where like they are constantly just trying to take away her meds or decrease them or like question whether or not she's abusing them or giving them to other people. Um, And she's had to go through like multiple doctors for it. And the thing is, is like, so what if she's getting high because she's in so much pain already, she doesn't even really leave the house. She's basically like stuck on the couch. She's not completely bedridden, but she can't walk very far. And it's like, her life is already so bad. Why, why do we have, like, why is your concern that she's going to get addicted when like, you know what, like at this point, there are way worse issues she's dealing with. Mm -hmm. The pain is way worse. I've also heard horror stories of people where like their parents have been on their deathbed and like, they literally won't relieve people's pain because they're afraid that they're going to get hooked on opioids when in reality, they're literally on their deathbed. So what? And I'm sure when the peak of this started happening, like when law enforcement started cutting things off, doctors like had to kind of make people quit cold turkey. It didn't seem like the overdoses were as high at that time. So maybe it was safer to go to the drug supply back then, maybe than it is now. Whereas I don't know if it would have been that bad a long time ago. You tell me. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, like, if I'm trying to think of like what what year it was where physicians were basically forced to cut their patients off or cut them back. But it was during an era where like heroin was the big scare. I mean, like every, every, I guess, era or whatever it is that we want to call it, there's always like a drug that is the scare of that decade. And heroin was one of them. I mean, meth was one of them. 
crack cocaine was one of them, and now it's fentanyl in this era. Heroin, as bad as it was and is for putting people at risk, I mean, like, it was not as bad as fentanyl at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's been made worse. And like you said, there's always something. Like right now, the conversation that's legal in a lot of places is Kratom. Oh my God, yeah. I'm like, uh, I'm glad for some people they've been able to find that Kratom helps with like their opioid use disorder and pain in general. But at the same time, it's not regulated. As you just mentioned, there's a lot of Kratom supplements that are sold that are not following the guidelines. I guess it's like every supplement, honestly, that you yeah. find in the grocery store that's not mm-hmm. FDA approved and they just like make up bogus mm-hmm. bottles and stuff. It's Yeah. And Kratom can really, really put people at risk. Some people, um, this is like not research that I've read, but like just heard from people that I've known abuse it said that they got way more addicted to Kratom than when they were on opioids. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, it seems like it's better, but at the same time, I mean, it could still be just as risky. Yeah. I think that for a lot of people, that's the biggest concern is that it's, it's unregulated. Technically, I mean, I know street supplies are also unregulated. It's kind of the same problem where you just don't (laughs) necessarily know what you're getting. It was hard for me to find a lot of research on Kratom to really understand it. What I read is a wide range of potential experiences, probably because there's not as much, you know, clinical research to be able to differentiate. And weirdly, I read that it can have both an upper and a downer effect for my listeners, like a stimulant and kind of a depressant effect, which if that's accurate, that that would seem kind of unique that you could have both in the same substance or like the same supply that's coming from the same drug. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure if it's through the same underlying mechanism, but I know a lot of people will wake up and put it in their smoothies as like um, a way to start off their morning because it gives them energy. But a lot of people can also say the same thing about opioids. <laughs> When they take it, it doesn't always necessarily just put people to sleep. And I mean, I guess alcohol also does the same thing. You feel like it gives you energy. An energy drink, a Red Bull, like me this morning. (laughs) Yes, I am pro-energy drink, anti-coffee. Well, not anti-coffee. I will drink coffee. I'm there. Energy drinks are so much better. Per usual, we're on the same page. Yeah. (laughs) And the the talk about abstinence, I want to make sure that we cover this. So for probably a lot of people have heard about that and AA or Alcoholics Anonymous and the, you know, steps in that process. And the goal is to get people off, well, in this case, alcohol, but there are a lot of other groups too, where the goal is just not using at all. So I'm from, it's interesting because this is where our fields kind of intersect in many ways. So for us, I mean, we see the research on outcomes, we see racial disparities in those experiences as well. And so from a therapy standpoint, but I'm also curious from like your standpoint too, and like the neuroscience and like all these different things. And that probably brings us into the very confusing and loose definition of what addiction might mean too. From a standpoint of like abstinence-based, just like- you Tell me all the things. I guess- I mean, broadly, yeah, I, if you if you want to be abstinence-based, I mean, you won't have to deal with worrying about having a tolerance and then not taking the drug anymore and then having a de- decreased amount of dopamine in your body and then having your body have to recover from that. And there's some research that suggests that if you take drugs for a, a long time, um, your dopamine 
will take years to come back to normal baseline levels, um, which can be really, really difficult for people. And that's why mm-hmm. I mean, abstinence-based recovery is so hard in general. Whereas on, on the other end, you know, like you could still continue using drugs in a safe way um, or like, however, I guess it depends on what drug we're talking about. Like just if you wanted to use opioids to like treat your pain every once in a while or get high every once in a while, you'd really have to do it in like a safe way that's not going to build up a tolerance too much. Because I think when we talk about substance use disorders, it really just comes down to preventing or maintaining a tolerance level because eventually once you get such a high tolerance when you're not using the drug, that's where you go through withdrawal or just depending on how high your tolerance is, how long the withdrawal will last and depending on the drug, what kind of withdrawal and some withdrawal will be manageable. So like if you take, I know your other person talked about Adderall, but like it's a common one. So I usually use that as an example, Mm -hmm. but like people who take Adderall every day, they'll start to grow a tolerance to it where it no longer affects them as much. But then when they stop taking it, they have headaches and they're really, really tired and it'll take them a few days to get off of it. But sometimes like that risk is worth it for them because they need it and it benefits them due to their ADHD or if they are just trying to get a lot of schoolwork done. I mean, I'm not going to judge either way versus being completely abstinent and not having to deal with the the tolerance and the the ups and the downs and all of that. When it comes to abstinence, though, for recovery, <laughs> I mean, do we want to get into like the issues with AA? <laughs> all all the things, basically, all the- I guess one size fits all, and that seems to be the the peak one. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't sure should we go into that or should I talk about my rats on abstinence? We should just talk about oh. it. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, my rats will probably come up at some point. My rats are, uh, I'm doing it, working with opioids right now, where like, in general, if they take drug every other day, they'll essentially take a lot. And then they'll go through a withdrawal period the next day where they don't have any drug. And then they kind of repeat and back back and forth, you're kind of like causing them forced abstinence while also just giving them the drug and like preventing that. And they have like this really weird reaction where um, they'll take a lot of drug on the first day and then it looks like they're just hungover the next day. So maybe hungover and going through withdrawal, not really sure. But then the next time they'll take less like they have an adverse reaction to the opioids. Like they'll go up and down and up and down. So like they'll take a lot one day and they're like, wow, I feel like shit today. <laughs> Let me take tomorrow. They take less. And then maybe they're like, I'm totally fine. I'm going to take way more tomorrow. And they take a whole bunch more. And then they just have it up and down and up and down. <laughs> um, and I know that like that really mirrors what a lot of people's experiences are with not just opiates in general, but just like a lot of drugs, the up and down and like going through the hangover and stuff and Yeah, but at the same time, if you take drugs every other day or every few days rather than every single day, your tolerance won't go up as much. So there's pros and cons to that. Trying to think of a, oh, this is a good paradigm. Um, We'll put rats into a chamber where there'll be a shock delivered if they drink the drug. Now that shock is considered a consequence. So will they continue drinking knowing they're going to get a shock or will they not? Some rats are going to continue taking it anyways because they will literally take the consequences no matter what. Yeah, interesting. 
Interesting. And so, yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous is one of those where, okay, you're going to stop for good. There's no, we don't have a drink here and there. There's step process involved. It's tricky because that's the main one that people tend to turn to. Like it's the biggest, like most well-known, probably most, one of the most accessible nationwide, I would imagine. So what are your thoughts on that? Oh God, AA. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous, but a lot of people who use any kind of drugs and are going through any kind of addiction go to it. Um, It's not just for alcoholics, but it's essentially, I mean, it's not really evidence-based. It works for other reasons that I'll get into. It's uh, usually faith-based, but that will depend on where you're going. So there's like a 12-step program. I forget exactly what the steps are in order, but I'm pretty sure the first, if not the first, one of the first is that you surrender yourself to a higher power, which a lot of people in AA will say that can mean anything to you as long as you believe that there is something. But when you actually go, I'd say that really, really varies depending on where you're at. Like the ones Mm -hmm. in Ohio, they may say that, but at the same time, when you go, just about everybody there is Christian and white. (laughs) Um, And now I'm sure they're a lot different out in California when you go as well. So that automatically takes out a whole bunch of people um, and just kind of forcing yourself to surrender to a higher being, which a lot of people don't believe in. And so... (laughs) This other, this other dark part of AA is that you cannot have any kind of drugs at all, I think, except for caffeine and nicotine. That's where they draw the line and say it's acceptable, but that depends. A lot of people will discourage getting other kind of mental health care. They'll discourage going to methadone clinics for their substance use disorder, um, which, I mean, yeah, we talked about the issue of why that is problematic. I mean, stopping cold turkey is really, really risky and difficult. And uh, methadone can help a lot of people, but they won't tolerate it there. And they just basically tell people that it's uh, switching one drug for the other. And I mean, like, I guess in a literal sense, it is, but that's a good thing. Because one is a safe supply that's long acting with a long half-life that will give you some stability in your life. The other thing about AA that drives me nuts and it's gonna make me sound like I'm anti-capitalist or something but it really really forces people um like they they subscribe to this belief that people have to hit rock bottom and that you have to essentially pull yourself up by the bootstraps it's just it's literally that narrative where they want you to cut off other people in your life that are still using subscribe to like this tough love kind of thing where they encourage your family members um, who tell you to go to AA and there's like a whole family section of AA. I forget what it's called, but like if your family member is addicted to AA, such as this, and they basically tell you and the family members that you need to give them tough love. You need to say like, if you don't get off this, then we're going to like kick you out of the house or something like that, which yes, may work for some people to like, you know, you're at rock bottom and you seriously need to make a change. But the thing is for every one person it helps, it probably hurts like 10 people who aren't able to do that right away and then get kicked out. And then now they're homeless or something, or they don't have any friends, which just makes the addiction worse. And you usually don't hear about those people because you only hear about the success stories in AA. It's not context and, dependent. And what just drives me nuts is like a lot of the reasons that people start using drugs, especially drugs like opioids is because they feel alone. 
And AA really just kind of pushes people to be even more alone. Like you need to cut off your other friends that aren't abstinence-based. A lot of people end up only having friends in AA. And if it doesn't, you know, work out, it also kind of convinces your family and you that like you need to cut off the addict and let them hit rock bottom before they can continue climbing up to where they need to be in abstinence-based recovery. Um, And so it pushes a lot of people to be even more isolated when they don't need to be. And that is Mm. what fuel an addiction and overdose. At the same time, though, AHA has saved a lot of lives, but a lot of people don't talk about how many lives it's hurt because a lot of people can't talk about that. It's very, uh, well, I mean, admitting that you use drugs on a non-abstinence based is kind of like literally illegal to do. So you only hear the the success stories of abstinence-based programs and AA programs. And also we're in the U.S. where a lot of people are Christian. So a lot of people really, really like AA. So. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think the theme of everything that we've talked about, it's a cost benefit analysis and none of the mainstream options really allow that cost benefits analysis in a way that is individualized for the person. Even if it wasn't AA and it was something else, even some harm reduction approaches, like if we just did that for every single person, even the rats that you were just talking about, some of them will still go for it, even though they're going to get a, get shocked, but then some aren't. And so even in the rat, there's a lot of variability there. There's a lot of uniqueness. And so it makes sense then that AA is helpful for a lot of people. It has that structure, community, maybe that they don't have other places. And then for other people, it like they lose their community. I mean, it sucks because people assume that it's always two sides. It's either AA, abstinence space versus harm reduction or not abstinence space. And the thing is, is AA has a place in harm reduction. It's mm-hmm. like the thing is, you meet people where they're at. If they are very, very religious or they kind of they kind of want that community where they don't want to have the other additional help and they want to cut um, cut off drugs, cold turkey like that, then AA is the way to go. Go do it. I mean, and mm-hmm. AA people will admit this too. At least some of the ones that I've met is like, uh, a lot of times you'll get arrested and they will put you in like a drug court and they act like in general drug courts are just like so much better. We're, we're offering better solutions and options now, which is great, but not really because the options are like, well, you can serve some time or you can go to AA. And the thing is, is like they've incorporated AA into the law. And a lot of AA people will even admit that they don't like that either because it brings people who don't even want to get clean to AA. A lot of people who are in AA go there because they have to get like a court document signed that they were there and they have to go get their sessions done and then they leave. I mean, that that hurts people in AA as well as it hurts the people who actually needed something else, like another harm reduction approach that you just can't do because it's like considered illegal. I mean, even the idea of handing out clean needles was really, really controversial and still is in a lot of places. Do we know a lot about the, so if you're a chronic user, I guess really of any substances, but I know we're focusing on opioids. And so then for, you know, your brain doesn't think you need to produce that anymore. Let's say you do actually find a way to just totally cut your yourself off. Do we know the long-term effects as far as 
are our brains able to recover? Is there plasticity there? Is it there for some people and not others? Or I'm just curious what we know and like what factors are at play and maybe what we don't know, which I would assume per usual is a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, our brains are plastic in the sense that it can recover through a lot of things. Neuroplasticity, it's interesting because like you kind of have more of that ability to recover better in adolescence. But at the same time, when you take drugs in adolescence, you're more likely to develop substance use disorder in adulthood because Mm -hmm. like your brain is literally developing as you're, you know, taking all of these drugs or taking one drug repeatedly. So I think a big part of it is one, how much and how often you're taking it and two, also when, because I have seen in general taking, starting uh, the use of any drug or alcohol in adulthood has always been way better just of a success rate of being able to recover from the substance use disorder. Oh, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's kind of, I'm not trying to sound like anti teaching kids about drugs, because like a big part of the issue is like, we use the D.A.R.E. program, which just scared people and like fear mongered and made lies. And then people still did drugs anyways. And it's kind of like the issue of like teaching people about sex. Do you want to scare them or do you want to educate about them? educate about sex and the risks of it and how to prevent those risks and stuff. Like you'd rather educate, which I for sure would say the same thing about drug use in adolescence. But at the same time, like it would be better if the adolescent did wait until their brain was more developed than taking it when they're younger. Yeah. that That's just kind of like, it sucks because kids are probably going to use drugs. That's when they experiment. But yeah, that's why it's just better to know the risks to prevent yourself from it and knowing that like, you know, not taking it often and in high doses would be better. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on and talking about all of these different topics. And I love the revamp of your page, by the way. Those of you that don't know, Paige and I love our controversial posts on there and really talking a lot about substance use, the mechanisms, how that works, like correcting a lot of these misconceptions to help people like go on that unlearning process. So do you want to give people your information where they can find you on Instagram? I think that's your main presence, right? Yes, I have a separate Instagram now. It's at the SUD scientist. Um, It has a cool little picture uh that my partner made that is I'm like a cartoon character it looks super cool yeah separated it from my personal one which I'm sure if you go back and listen to like the social isolation and epigenetics and gene expression episode I did I was still on my personal one but life's crazy follow me on Instagram to learn more and you can hear me rant about how annoyed I am at stigma do like a second part to Dr. Ryan Marino, who I feel like has a similar personality to me, who also just makes fun of all of the bullshit. Just want to learn about the molecular part of drugs as well and how our brains work. Follow me for that as well. I love it. And I guess a last message I would like to reiterate is no one's going to give your kids drugs on Halloween that look like Skittles and you can overdose from fentanyl just by touching it. Mm, Yes. Wow. I mean, that really covers the whole thing. 
I think. Make sure you follow the Sud Scientist, aka Paige, on Instagram. She provides a lot of research, but in bite-sized pieces, which of course we love here. And she also includes amazing graphics, which of course that never hurts. I know I love a good picture when I'm looking at things I do not understand. And before I end the season, and of course means we'll be taking a break for a while, I want to share what you can expect from the next season. As you know, the name of this podcast is Revealing the Ivory Tower. And a huge reason is everything that gets threaded into all of these episodes, including this one, that the ivory tower or the bubble that academia is in creates a lot of problems and the information needs to reach the public. And the way that the studies are conducted or recommendations are often pretty disconnected from the public and the people that it's meant to help or inform. There is another reason. And if you follow me on social media, probably more than this particular podcast, you may also have hints of what my personal experiences have been navigating many years in academia and more specifically what happened in my PhD program. I think it's time to devote an entire season into a deep dive of what happened because it is absolutely a wild ride and probably the most caricature explanation of experiences that one can have in academia. And I won't be alone. Make sure to follow and subscribe because this is a season you absolutely will not want to miss. And of course, we'll be threading throughout that whole entire season what exactly we mean by revealing the ivory tower, the darker side of academia and the ivory tower. Thank you all so much for consistently supporting and listening to this podcast.